What is it that gives a person credibility in your eyes? I mean, think about it. If you go into a doctor's office or a lawyer's office, what is it that you'd like to see up on the wall for credibility's sake? You want to see diplomas, right? Even if it's from Ole Miss. It, it wouldn't bother me. You know, I'm just kidding. State, Ole Miss, Southern. I don't care, I don't care where they got the diploma, you know? Uh, I just want to see it up there. I want some evidence that this person is qualified to take care of me. Uh, if I'm going to take my car in for a repair, if i got to go to the shop, I'm checking the Google reviews for that place before I go, just in case, right? Uh, if I'm going to vote for somebody, catchy campaign slogans, attractive yard signs, don't mean a whole lot, right? What's their record? What have they done? How can I know that this person is going to represent all of us with dignity and honesty? That's what matters to me. That's what matters to you. Do they have credibility? It's an important thing, right? But it can be a tricky thing. If you're a business owner, you can attest to the fact that a few, a few dishonest Google reviews can really ruin you. Uh, or a politician. I mean, a politicians make a living out of smearing each other's names, saying things about each other that aren't true. How do you really know if a person has credibility based on what you choose to believe. So credibility is important, but it can be a difficult thing to grapple with. We don't always know who to trust or what's really true. Well, y'all, as we begin today in our study of Galatians, which was written by the Apostle Paul, Paul was a man constantly battling for credibility. He spent his whole life in ministry doing this. First and foremost was the credibility of the message he preached. It was a very strange message about this man named Jesus who apparently rose from the dead. People found that hard to believe. And also, of course, Paul was fighting for his own credibility because people were always calling into question his past and his credentials, sometimes even his own motives. And yet what we see in Paul's letters, what we see in the book of Acts, never once did Paul waver on the truth of the gospel, his message, or on God's uh, call upon him to preach it, to be its messenger. Okay? And so when we enter into Galatians, we're actually entering into to a context here. Something's going on. It's almost like a perfect storm that Paul's found himself in. Because Paul has, has previously gone to these regions of Galatia, these cities in this region, and preached the gospel. He was the first person to do that. You can read about it in Acts chapters 13 and 14. He goes in and preaches to these Gentiles, these people who have no concept of the Old Testament or of the God of Israel. This is all very new to them, but they receive the good news as truly good. They're rejoicing over what Paul tells them. They're believing in Jesus. They're being saved. Christian churches are being born in Galatia. But then, of course, Paul leaves that region to go and continue his missionary journey. And that's when some other men come in behind him to preach a different message a message that both contradicted the gospel and also cast doubt on Paul himself. So Paul gets word about what's going on in Galatia, and he very urgently sits down to write them a letter. And he also, as we enter into this letter together, that's the context, that's why Paul's writing. I want us to be very careful here. It's an easy thing for us to kind of look over Paul's shoulder with interest. I'm curious about the ideas he's going to write down. Let's do this instead. Let's consider that we are the audience here. We are the church. What Paul is writing specifically to these churches is evergreen. It will always be relevant to us right here and right now where we sit. So we're the intended audience, and I want us to read it just like that, okay? 
So start with me in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. As Paul introduces himself and his purpose here, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Now, I always struggle, when, especially when I go into the letters like these, the, the greeting, the introduction, I'm always just kind of skimming past it to get to the good stuff. But y'all, the good stuff's right here in what we just read. It'd be a critical mistake anytime to skip over the greeting because Paul's already early on giving us the foundation for the whole letter. Both the messenger and the message are laid out for us clear as day from the start. And so you can't really understand Galatians unless we get the greeting down, right? So first, we see the messenger. Paul introduces himself, very simply, Paul, an apostle. But now in this parentheses here, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Now, why does Paul make careful mention in parentheses there what he just told us? Why not just say Paul an apostle and move on? The false teachers who had come in after the fact and were belittling Paul behind his back, they were disputing his claim to apostleship. And y'all, that, that's a big deal because an apostle is a person sent out by Jesus himself with authority for ministry. Not anybody could just claim to be an apostle. It was a significant office in the New Testament and the early church. But see, here's the argument against Paul. Paul never actually met Jesus. Paul was not one of the original disciples. In fact, Paul was a sworn enemy of the church. The first time we ever meet Paul, he's uh, persecuting the Christian movement. He's against it. And so the argument was clear and, and simple. This man's not an apostle. How could he be? He's simply piggybacking on the title. The real guys, James and, and John and you know, uh, Thomas, the real apostles, they're the real deal. Paul's just trying to make a name for himself by stealing the word. But of course, Paul doesn't back down on this point. He is a genuine apostle sent directly by the risen Jesus. He meets all of the qualifications, and we don't have to take his word for it. Right? The whole thing is actually recorded by somebody else to begin with, by Luke. And you don't need to turn to, to, to Acts chapter 9, but when Luke records Acts chapter 9, and we'll look at it again more next week, we see Paul becoming an apostle. And it's one of the most dramatic and significant accounts in the entire Bible that Paul, who was also called Saul, was a persecutor of the church. He was bloodthirsty against the early Christians because he was a good Jewish Pharisee who saw the Christian movement as a threat to God and his people. And so Saul, Paul, is on his way to Damascus. You remember this story. And he's got one purpose. He's going to persecute these believers in Jesus. When suddenly on the road, a bright light from heaven shines all around him, so bright that it knocks him to the ground and blinds him. And then a divine voice comes to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Paul says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replies, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus tells Paul to get up and go into the city and to wait for what God's going to do next. Then we read that Paul is soon baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ. He regains his sight, and then he is sent out. Immediately he goes out and begins to preach the gospel. Everything's changed. And we'll see more about that when Paul gives his testimony next week. But y'all, the long and the short of it is, the risen Jesus specifically and miraculously saved Paul and called him into ministry as an apostle. Which is why Paul is so adamant there to say, no man sent me. No agency. Nobody signed my spiritual diploma to give me credibility. My credibility as an apostle comes straight from the top. And you can ask the people who know. and They'll affirm it. So that's important, right? Because a, a, an untrustworthy messenger is no, is no good. How do you know if anything he says is true? Paul is trustworthy. He is an apostle. But more important to him was the message itself. The message was even more significant to him. You see this in verse 3 again? He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Y'all right there, so simple, so clear, that's the message of our salvation. God's grace, God's peace are ours through the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Jesus died in our place as our perfect sacrifice to forgive us all our sins. And he's rescued us from this present evil age, Paul says. That means that Jesus has delivered us out of the domain, out of the power of Satan and of sin and death. We're no longer living in our sins, condemned and under judgment, but we are now experiencing eternal life in union with Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer doing the will of Satan. We are now living as evidence of Jesus Christ and His grace. We are in Him. No long, Jesus said it like this way. Uh, he said, um, He who believes in Me will no longer walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. We've been rescued out of what we were. And all of this is according to God's will. It was God's idea, and it's for God's glory. So y'all, this is every single week you're going to hear this good news at Harvest Church. We're never going to skip a week, right? Because this is the only reason we're here. This is the only reason we're allowed in these doors. It's the only reason we can worship with any confidence at all. It's because Jesus Christ freely and fully saves Everybody who trusts in him. This is the message of grace that Jesus gave his messenger, Paul, to proclaim. Now, I said this before, when Paul first goes to the churches in Galatia, which at that time were no churches at all, they were just, they were pagan people. They hear him, they see him, and they receive him. There was great rejoicing, the scripture tells us, when he reveals to them God's grace through Christ. They trust Jesus and they're saved. They'd never heard anything like this before. Such a precious and glorious message that God actually loves me, a sinner. And even more than that, the fact that God was saving not just the Jewish people, not just the people of Israel, but now also the Gentiles, people 
from Galatia, people from Mississippi. God actually saves people who are uh, not uh, the children of Abraham by birth. Anybody can get in on this. Good news doesn't even begin to describe what they're now receiving. Rather than being shut out, we've been brought near by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's good news. They received it with joy. But then Paul leaves. He's got other places to preach. And people come in, and things take a decisive turn south. And Paul is, uh, he's not just a little bothered by what's transpiring here. He gets right to the point in verse 6. I'm amazed, astonished, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul, uh, Paul had seen a lot of things. He was not easily astonished. He was not easily outraged. But here he is, beside himself. His jaw is on the floor as he writes this letter. What's happening among the churches? He's furious. What's got him so angry? You know, I mentioned earlier that these teachers who had come in after Paul were teaching a different message, right? Well, who were these guys? And what was the message? That's something we have to understand because Galatians goes on and on and on about this particular issue. These were not people who were against Christ altogether. Very interesting and almost a little subtle when we consider that these people were Christians. They were Jewish Christians. And so they had an agenda that was different than Paul's. What they said to the people of Galatia, the Gentiles, it went like this. Jesus is the Messiah. Yes. And you believe in him to be saved. Yes. But you can't really be saved. You're not truly saved unless you become as we are. You Gentiles must become like us Jews, meaning you must be circumcised, you must abide by the laws and the practices, the feasts and the festivals, all the things that God gave his people Israel to do, you must also do if you're really going to be saved. And hey, we can, you know, Jesus said, John chapter 4, Jesus said salvation is from the Jews, right? He said it. Now, I, y'all, we might be able to say, oh, of course not, ridiculous, from where we sit here today. But I want you to know that that was a very easy message to believe. It makes a lot of sense, especially to people who had no background, who had no deeper understanding of the New Testament as maybe we do today. We shouldn't posture ourselves as smarter than the Galatians were. They're the same as us. It's a pretty easy message to accept because think about it. Keep in mind, there was no New Testament at this point. as Paul, Paul's writing it. I mean, as we speak, Paul's writing it. So nobody had a copy of the New Testament that they could flip through and say, nah, uh, 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 it says it right here. All they had was the Old Testament. And frankly, the Gentiles really didn't even have that. They didn't know what was in there. They didn't grow up studying the law or knowing all about Moses and Abraham and David and the rest. And so these men come in and very easily they're able to convince these people, look, all throughout history, God has set his people apart as his people. How? Through the rite of circumcision, through the giving of the law, through ancestry to Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. And of course, the Gentiles didn't possess any of those privileges. 
They had none of those things working in their favor. And so here's the, here's the message, clear as day. God will allow you in. He sure will. But you can only enter in the same way we did. You have to go in the same door we used. You have to conform to our rituals. You have to obey our laws. You have to do what God has always done with his people. That's how you become his people. You can't really be saved. You can't really belong to God until you enter in through our door. That's, that's, that's an easy message to, to buy into, right? And, and certainly the Galatians were doing that. They were, they were believing because it made sense to them. You know, God's not going to scrap everything he's done in the past. Surely we've got to conform. We've got to add on. But you notice again what Paul says about this. Paul doesn't say, ah, you know, tomato, tomato. So, you know, subtle differences. Paul says, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And Paul goes on to clarify, there isn't actually no different gospel. There is no other gospel. There's only one gospel. And so what these people are preaching to you is no gospel at all. It didn't come from God. And y'all, here's the irony in it that Paul wants to show us. These Men, these false teachers, are adding on requirements, saying this is what you must do in order to belong to God. Paul says, if you do that, you are actually deserting God. You're not getting closer to God through your good works. You are actually denying Him. You're turning your back on Him, the one who called you by His grace. And so this is, y'all, this is an issue that's going to come up. If you come back next week and the week after that, we're going to talk about it some more because it's so much of the basis of this letter. But I'll just summarize it for now like this. When Paul uses that word grace, this is at least the second time he's used it in the first, what, six verses? Grace means unmerited gift. And so by the definition of the word, grace is not something that you can earn or even contribute to. It can't be added to. That's the whole point of the good news of the gospel, that in Christ, God has saved us entirely by His grace alone. 100% grace. The message of the false teachers was, well, okay, yeah, Jesus is necessary for salvation. You can't be saved without him, but he's not sufficient. He's necessary, but he's not sufficient. You must complete what is lacking through your own obedience, through your own conformity. In other words, the law must finish what Jesus started. The law must finish what Jesus started. That was the message. His grace alone is great. It's necessary, but it's not enough. And Paul punches back hard. He says, if you deny the sufficiency of God's grace, you are deserting God altogether. You're not just diminishing God a little. You're turning tail and running the other direction. If you try to add anything to Jesus, you subtract Jesus. If you try to add anything to him, you lose him entirely. Paul wants us to know this is not a matter of subtle difference. This is not semantics. This is life and death. And that's why Paul says it so forcefully, you see in verse 8. 
But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. This is one of the harshest and most forceful statements in the whole Bible. But we have to embrace it, and, and we ought to embrace it the way that Paul does. He, he, he means what he says. If anyone, even one of us, even an apostle, even an angel, a divine being come down from heaven, anybody who preaches a different gospel, may he be eternally condemned. May he be under God's curse, separated from God forever. Why? Because to pervert the gospel, to distort or even deny God's free grace is to deny God himself. It's to call God a liar. And it's to lead others into condemnation. Y'all, if I, as, as a preacher, if I stand up here today and say to you, listen, God will love you and he will accept you. Yes, he will. All you've got to do is quit your coveting and your lying, your cheating, your stealing. Let's get out the Ten Commandments and do what they say, and then God will open the door wide for us. That's what most people in, inherently believe God is like. I do my part, God will do his part. God will love me if I'm good enough and make enough effort. If I preach that to you, I am leading you away from God, not toward him. I'm leading you into condemnation, not life. And Paul says, I should be eternally condemned for such a false and harmful, dead message. These men, Paul says, are trying to convince you that you have to bolster your own religious resume in order for God to truly accept you. They are leading you away from him, not closer. They're taking you back to where you were. Once condemned, you'll be condemned all over again if you believe that message. And so let these teachers be accursed. Now, y'all, the Apostle Paul does not desire anybody to be condemned. You, you can read Romans and you see it with, with great clarity there. He doesn't relish the thought of these false teachers being punished. But he's not going to budge on the credibility of God's good news. He's not going to soften the message or allow some concessions here to protect anybody's feelings. Paul stands on the credibility of the message. The gospel is either the free grace of God secured for us entirely through the death and resurrection of Jesus, or it's nothing at all. It's worthless. The gospel is either the free grace of God secured entirely for us through the death and resurrection of his son, or it's absolutely worthless. We're wasting our time. We're wasting our lives. We have no hope. And so when Paul speaks of the gospel, he beams, not looking to himself, not pointing to himself, but always and ever pointing to Jesus Christ. Paul wants us to know he's a true apostle. His credibility matters, but he doesn't ultimately care. Even if I preach a false gospel to you, let me be accursed. That's what he's saying. Because ultimately it's the gospel of God. Look to God, not to me, not to any teacher, Look at what Jesus Christ has done. 
That's why when Paul speaks to the Corinthians, he says, I purpose to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It's the only thing I care to know. It's the only thing I'll ever preach, Jesus, and what he's done for us. And, you know, that makes sense now. The last verse we'll look at today, verse 10, it makes sense that Paul would now segue into this, um, this foundation upon which he stands as a teacher, as an apostle. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, this is a reaction now on Paul's part, that one of the accusations lobbied against him was that he was a people pleaser. And specifically, here's what Paul has done. He's gone to the Gentiles, the people who don't know what the Old Testament says. They didn't grow up studying this book. So he goes down there and he tells them, listen, there's a free grace God has for you, and it requires nothing of you. No circumcision. You don't have to keep the law in advance to earn your way in. You simply repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Just trust in Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, in come the detractors and they say, well, you, it, it's, clear, it's clear what he's doing here. He's removing the sharp edges. He's taking all the requirements out of the picture to make it easy for you to believe because he wants your approval. He's tickling your ears. He wants you to think he's the best apostle. He wants to be your favorite. He's simply trying to get your acceptance, approval, and applause. That's why he's making it so easy. But they've actually gotten it backward. And this, this will become clear as we study through this letter. The message of grace has a sharper edge than any other message you'll ever hear. The message of grace is actually in many ways harder to accept than a message of law. It was Paul's message of grace that got him half beaten to death over and over and over again. It was Paul's message of grace that got him thrown into prison. And it was that same message that eventually got him killed. If Paul wanted to be a people pleaser, he could have easily towed that line between grace and law, and he could have really made everybody happy. But he didn't. He preached the message of Christ and Christ alone because Jesus was more valuable to him than his approval rating or his reputation or any knocks against his credibility that a man could bring. That's why Paul says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. It's one or the other, y'all. And you can apply that to yourself right where you sit. You cannot live for the approval of everybody else and also live for the approval of Jesus. There will always be abrasion. There will always be conflict. There will always be decisions to be made. Because what y'all expect of me and, and like about me or don't like about me, ultimately I have to make a choice as to what matters more. Love for and obedience to Jesus or keeping y'all happy. Every one of us has to make that decision as Paul did. And Paul simply says, I choose Christ. I choose Christ. Now, I mentioned this a minute ago. That all of the issues today expand throughout the letter. Right? Anything, any un, un, you know, loose ends maybe that you feel today, they'll come back around, I promise. Next week we'll see more of Paul's personal testimony. Then we get much deeper into the roots of the two different teachings and what makes them different. But y'all, today as we close, I, I want to leave us with one great big takeaway. Something we've already read and I've tried to accentuate as I've read it, but now I just want to 
point to it head on. When Paul gives us the gospel in verse 4, so simple, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Notice what Paul does not say about the gospel, about the message. He does not say Jesus came to give us a new and abridged rule book that if we follow this, God will accept us. Jesus did not come to give us a pep talk to motivate us to do better and try harder. Jesus did not come to give you a second chance to atone for your past failures and to get it right next time. What did Jesus give? Himself. Jesus gave himself for our sins. And y'all, even when Paul defines the terrible problem in verse 6, you see again what he says, verse 6? You are deserting him who called you by his grace. The blessed reality of the Christian faith is not that we have certain laws that define us or behaviors that make us acceptable to God, that we give the appearance of a certain kind of of religion that that separates us out from everybody else. Y'all, the distinctive thing, the one great thing that makes you Christian is that you get God. Jesus Christ brings us to God, Peter says. We are reconciled to God. We have peace with God. We get Him. You don't get ideas and philosophies merely. You don't get words on a page merely. Only to the degree that every word on the page here points us to a person. God himself has allowed us in. And in fact, he didn't just allow us in. He came to find us, to bring us in. That's what he's done in Christ. God has given himself for us to unite himself with us to make us his own. That's why we sang it earlier. I am His and He is mine. And I hope we really believe that. One of those songs I mentioned when I was growing up, we sang Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Does that make you uncomfortable? Blessed Assurance. We've kept the rules. There's no assurance there. Blessed assurance, we look the part. Blessed assurance, you think I'm nice. What good would that do? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. So right here where we sit, I want to call us to this gospel, this grace, this person, his unmerited gift. That on one side of the coin, I want you to know that your very worst sins do not disqualify you from His mercy. That's why we call it grace. Jesus Christ, on the cross, paid the penalty for all your sins forever. And on the other side of that coin, for us nice people, your best efforts cannot earn you His favor. That's why we need grace. Because only in Jesus Christ do we have a God who delighted to give us Himself to be our all-sufficient, all-forgiving, and all-justifying Savior. 
now and ever, we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, I pray for for my own heart, I pray for us all, that we would take serious inventory from Galatians 1. This This is not a bygone problem from long ago. I pray that we would see if there is any temptation in our own hearts to feel like we must add to Jesus. We must fill in some gap. We must complete something unfinished. If, Father, if perhaps that was how we were raised, that we went to a church or we were raised in a family where belief in Jesus was good and fine, but in the end we still had to earn our way through the door. Father, help us to see our own hearts this morning and to see this as a different gospel which is no gospel at all. And Lord, rather than us feeling shame for that or or condemnation, Lord, I pray, show us the truth. Show us the great blinding light of Jesus that knocks Paul to the ground and brings him new life in Christ. Lord, grant us this same grace. Lord, root out from our hearts and our minds any other notion that either I am good enough right where I sit or I must be good enough, and that's my ambition. Lord, help us to see that in Christ Jesus we are fully and freely saved. And I pray, Father, that that as we look to him and trust him, that we would would, uh, delight to know that this isn't just record-keeping up in heaven that saves us, Lord. We're saved for real. We have been rescued from this present evil age. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer what we used to be. But by your grace, we are new. And we are able to live as new creations. And so, Father, we didn't earn our way in here. It is all of grace. And because of grace, we are transformed to something we could never otherwise be. Father, I pray, help us to see and to take hold of all that which Jesus Christ has laid hold of us. He loved us. He gave himself for us. And he has rescued us. Father, I pray that if anyone in this room has believed only a portion of that, perhaps, and is is looking to themselves otherwise, then I pray today, Lord, for the full light of your grace to warm their heart, that they would look to Jesus alone, to nothing and no one else, because he alone is sufficient to save. Father, thank you that you did not give us a half gospel to help us along. Lord, you've given us everything. Lord, I pray we would believe it, that we believe you, and that, Lord, we would never, ever, ever desert you by looking elsewhere 
for the grace that you alone delight to give. Draw us near and let us praise you in song. In Christ's name, amen.